This episode is brought to you by Fishwilder by J.R.R.R. Jim Hardison. After a cataclysmic showdown 1,002 years ago, legendary depressed barbarian Thor Almighty Fist is hoping to get himself killed on one last adventure when he stumbles onto a sinister plot. Together with his best friend Brad the Talking Koi Fish and his noble steed Warlord Horse, they set out to battle the Heartless One, leader of the Dark Brotherhood of the Bad Religion, to find the pudding of power and save the people of Grome. The first in a funny fantasy trilogy that author Piers Anthony calls One Wild Romp, and Kirkus Reviews says rivals the wryness of Neil Gaiman. Fishwielder by Jim Hardison, an epically silly epic fantasy of epic proportions. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and Kobo from Fiery Seas Publishing. Visit fishwielder.com to pick up your copy today. That's fishwielder.com. Fishwielder by Jim Hardison. One pudding to rule them all. Let me talk to the storytellers for a second. You know who you are. Crafting a story that captures the imaginations and the hearts of your audience is no small task. Stacks of notes, timelines, maps, character profiles. The architecture of storytelling can be a daunting prospect. Introducing Archivos, the story development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. The Strangeful Things Podcast is a funny, irreverent exploration of all things strangeful. You'll hear the stories you haven't heard before about the topics you love, including cryptids, ghosts, UFOs, serial killers, exorcism, poltergeist, cannibalism, the Bermuda Triangle, murder, monsters, malevolence, and more. Join your hosts, Acadia, Jen, Christie, and sometimes even B-Nev and Kenny, every week as they dive into the mystery behind your favorite mysteries by delving into the bizarre and fantastic to give you a listening experience unlike any other podcast around. The Strangeful Things Podcast, guaranteed to tingle your spine and tickle your funny bone. Download on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Find them online at strangefulthings.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangeful. At the intersection of hilarious and horrifying, abnormal and paranormal, sensational and strange, you'll find the Strangeful Things Podcast. Subscribe today. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. 
<clears throat> Man, three, two, one. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest is returning for his third time on the show, author of the fantasy series The Great Coats Quartet. The concluding volume in the series Tyrant's Throne was released June 6th from Joe Fletcher Books. He's also celebrating the global release of his brand new young adult fantasy series Spellslinger, with book one available now from Hot Key Books. Fantasy Faction calls his Great Coats books a one-in-a-million series. Mark Lawrence calls the series a gripping read. Library Journal said his series was guaranteed to increase household swashbuckling by 100%. Master of the Celtic Whistle, arch-nemesis of one Brian Stanley, and Skyping in today from Vancouver, B.C., the one, the only, the attractive Mr. Sebastian DeCastell. Welcome back to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for that intro. You're welcome. That sounded... That, who wrote that for you? I did. That's all me, buddy. Really? Mm-hmm. Well done. Yeah, I, I I feel honored. The uh, I just did a, a gig as a musician a, a little while ago uh, at this casino because sort of more corporate rock gigs are casinos now. And the the MC who is like a big kind of one of those big personality MC types, but he gets up to the mic just before we we come on stage and he goes, and the band's called the Neurotics. This this particular band, and he goes, you know, and now um uh, uh this band uh, they're they're called the Neurotics. Uh, I I've never heard them before. Uh, and I think they play sixties and like, I don't know, I'm not really into sixties music. So <laughs> the neurotics, <laughs> so you are winning the competition okay. for best intro Sweet. One relative deal. to that guy. You are the attractive Mr. Sebastian tickets. you know who you kind of look like is a Treyu from the never ending story. You kind of like a grown up version. Of Treyu. Really? That's kind of you, but, <laughs> um, I used to, I used to be better looking. Uh, okay. So often, I think my author photo is is uh, is deceptive because <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm older and 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 uglier now. But um, somebody wrote that as a Goodreads question. It was the weirdest thing somebody wrote on Goodreads as a question as an author. I think I saw that. Like, how do you stay attractive or something? Like that. <laughs> yeah, you are so hot. How do you stay so hot? How do you stay so hot? <laughs> and I, I, I well, well we want to ask you that too, Sebastian. <laughs> how do you stay so hot? Uh, well, every year. Uh, you buy the latest version of Photoshop <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get a lot of good books on, uh, you know, skin smoothing, de-aging, you know, stuff like that. Um, basically you just like take the, you clip the photo, uh, you divide it in half, clip some of the middle and then smush it together. And that makes your face look thinner. It's basically that's, that's my secret. And then the rest of the time, just make sure no actual human beings ever see you. So they don't really know. <laughs> Just Skype interviews. Yeah. And there we have it. That's the interview. There's Thanks the for interview. coming back, Sebastian. Strong. Glad to have you. <laughs> so you were back on the show in January. So it's been about six-ish months since we've checked in with you. What's been going on since then, Sebastian? Uh, lots of uh, book launches, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, because mm-hmm. uh, Tyrant's Throne was coming out. So so if I talked to you guys in January, then that would have been a peak freaking out point for Tyrant's <laughs> Throne for me. Um <laughs> Because that book was so down to the wire, I feel so bad for everybody involved in the publishing process who had to move so fast because they were waiting on uh, on the end of that book. So that came out in April, and then uh, right in May, uh, Spellsinger came out. So I had to fly out to the UK for the worldwide, galactic-wide launch of uh, Spellsinger, which was which was kind of fun because it was by far the weirdest book launch I've ever been at. Yeah, it looks like you did a multi-date UK tour to uh, pimp out Spellslinger. We'll talk about Tyrant's Throne too, but why don't we talk about that book tour? How did that go for you? It was good. It was it was strange. You know, sort of book tour stuff is it's really unpredictable in a lot of ways um, because you know everybody 
sort of from an author standpoint, you think of a book launch and you think of bookstores and dates and stuff like that. But if you actually think of most human beings, how many people sit there and go Friday night, what should we do? Well, there's a concert or, you know, there's a movie that just came out that I like. No, no, let's go listen to an author talk about his book. In the <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a relatively small community of people who do that. The, the actual launch for Spellsinger was was absolutely uh, amazing, though. It was in um, Trafalgar Square in London. There's a, um, a church called St. Martin's of the Fields. And beneath it is a place called the Crypt. And, and it's sort of this medieval kind of crypt with, you know, 25 or 30 foot high ceilings. Um, and uh, all these arch, uh, all these, these arches and things like that and stone walls. And they had, they did this launch where they had actors playing characters from the books. And there was like a magician's duel halfway through. And uh, there was uh, all these uh, there was a squirrel cat. They they made a squirrel cat puppet and they had a puppeteer with the squirrel cat going around, mostly terrifying people, I think. And, um, <laughs> and, and, a, and someone doing card tricks and someone playing various Parfax, who's the sort of the Argosy uh, kind of gambler in the in the books. Um, so it was it was really kind of bizarre. Uh, it was fun. Fortunately, a, a few a few people I, I I'm sort of friends with um, came out like John Gwynn. Uh, and his family, he has the nicest family in the world and, and they came out. So, um, so I got to see them for almost 10 seconds, uh, <laughs> in that process. Um, because it's strange. Like if you have, I've never, I've never been part of what you would call like a big book launch. And so, um, the experience for me was, you know, I walked in the door and from that moment on, I was just constantly being pulled from one thing to another. So it's like having 40 conversations, none of which you ever get a chance to finish. So you start trying to get really good at having the shortest possible genuine moment you can. And that was, yeah, that was the book launch. It was, it was crazy. My, my, my wife enjoyed it. Thank heavens. So, so one of the great things about being married is there's someone who can enjoy things for you when you're, when you're not getting it so that, so that, you know, the experience isn't lost on you. Cause I was just so busy, um, at the, at the launch, but, but she's, you know, it was kind of funny cause it was almost, you know, 20 years before to the day that uh, she and I had gone to London together um, and gone to Trafalgar Square. Oh, so now we were back, but, but victorious somehow. Squirrel cats and cosplayers and all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. Did, like you, get, there was, did you get to keep the puppet? They, they offered it to me, but I, 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 I elected not to. <laughs> um, it's uh, I don't know. It just seems like the kind of th it's like when s I, I, I imagine that when people worked on like those Chucky movies, you know, the <laughs> but the, the yeah. horror puppet. Child's blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm guessing that someone was offered that puppet, too. And I think they probably said no as well. Funny story. I used to have a my buddy doll. Uh, mm -hmm. It was like so very similar to Chucky. And I remember uh, after Hulk Hogan lost uh, WrestleMania uh, six to Ultimate Warrior, I cut all the hair off of the uh, <laughs> my buddy doll and I slung it into the corner of my room, and it stayed there forever. And I just remember years later, like Chucky is basically that same doll. So yeah. that was my reaction to a wrestling match. You have issues. Yeah, that's. Uh, I uh, should we talk about that some more? <laughs> Like I, that's, I that's more for that another. That's for next time. I want to know that you're okay. <laughs> oh, he's not okay. That's more for another another time, maybe. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
you need like a secondary podcast. I think that there's the guys that do the there's a podcast called the Self Publishing Podcast or whatever with these these um these guys you know they seem like really cool guys from the the US and they've done really well for themselves with self publishing. They created this secondary podcast which I think is called Worst Show Ever. Um, mm. Literally because they needed an outlet for all the crap that they kept saying during the pot the the actual self publishing podcast that they shouldn't be talking about there. So you guys need like the Ooh. the you know the Phil podcast <laughs> where I can just say stupid shit. <laughs> no, just it's no. I think it could be really helpful. Just every week you spend about half an hour with random guests talking about Phil's issues, <laughs> and just like you know, it'd be like you know, we're here with Robin Hobb author of you know some of the works of fantasy ever robin do you have any insight into phil's issues <laughs> and ultimate um, warrior defeating hulk hogan yeah eventually you'll find an author who can help it's a great idea so. therapy time with phil it's cool well i guess we can speaking talk more about books speaking of ultimate warrior mm-hmm. let's talk about <laughs> your book uh segway can you tell us can you tell us about uh tyrant's throne and what can readers expect from the last book in this series? Quartet. The Great Coat series. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So Tyrant's Throne, it's the fourth in the quartet. So it's it's the end of the series and it's the culmination of everything that's come before. Um, I remember when I was writing it uh, or before I was writing it, after I finished Saint's Blood, I was at Worldcon and I was talking to David Gerald. who's a super nice guy. And I said, yeah, I'm really struggling with this fourth book. And and he's, you know, I, I asked him, what's your insight about writing the end of a series? And he said, he said, you know, you just have to figure out what are all the remaining questions you have about that world, you know, that you sort of think of that when you're thinking of a series, think of the world and go, you know, what, what is that? What questions is that world sort of good at answering? It's, it's kind of the, the whole culmination of a, of a series of swashbuckling books that are about, you know, the questions of the utility of idealism and, you know, does idealism really work? And, uh, you know, in the face of corruption and cynicism and pragmatism and all these other kind of forces that, that drive our society. So um, in 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 basic terms, you know, it's Falcio is poised to put uh, Aline on the throne, which has been the, the kind of thing that he has believed all this time would finally uh, help this troubled nation back to some semblance of normalcy. But he ends up sent on a mission up north uh because there's a uh, there's a problems with the bordering country uh and there he discovers two things that kind of um break his heart and uh and set in motion a, a whole bunch of terrible events that he has to figure out how to he and the other great coats have to figure out how to deal with that's not a very efficient blurb but no <laughs> i could make it more efficient i'm sure but it's it's uh for for people who've read the series i think the the draw is um you finally get to find the answer to all the questions that have been intentionally kept hidden uh, or unanswered until then. So a lot of people who read the, read the first book, they, they send me letters and emails saying, you know, how did Falcio beat Kest, and, uh, you know, before the book begins and, and how did Kest beat the saint of swords and what happened to all the other great codes. So you find out all those things. And is Tywin's Throne really the end of the series? Uh, or uh, I, I believe at the last page hints to possibly returning to that story world at some point. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely the end of the quartet. Um, I, I tried really hard with every book to have the book, each book be complete in and of itself. That's so a complete story with the beginning, middle, and end. 
and then the four books together form sort of the series and in, in that all of the questions that arose with the first book are, are answered by the fourth book. And so for me, it was important that there be a, a genuine ending. Um, there are discussions right now going on um, and negotiations about another Great Coat series, which is great because there's lots of enthusiasm for it. And uh, for me, the challenge is when I write a book, um, as much as, you know, I, I don't know how it is for other authors, whether, you know, like from a reader standpoint, sometimes you read a fantasy novel and, and you can say, oh, you know, it's a fun, light read. But fun, light reads aren't fun and light for the authors that write them. You're generally writing about something. There's generally something that you think is important. And, and this is an interesting way to explore that. And so uh, for me, when I put the four books, the four great coats books on the shelf, it kind of represents everything I have to say about idealism. Um, so when I'm looking at writing a second series in that world, the question that comes up for me is, OK, what am I what am I writing about? Because there's lots of easy ways to to do things that people enjoy. Like I can just write a book. I could just write a book from Brasty's perspective. And and there's a lot of Brasty fans out there and they would probably be happy and there would be lots of jokes and things like that. Um, but but there has to be something underneath all of that to make it have uh, any kind of soul. So it's that's what I tend to wrestle with in terms of it's not it's not a it's not a. Uh, feeling of uh, oh I don't want to write anything more in the in the world uh, in which Tristia is set uh, or that I don't want to write about great coats it's I need to write about something that has some kind of um, meaning to it uh, that sounds really poncy so I apologize but it, it's just it's it, I'm not saying it's better or worse than any kind of writing it's just when I sit down and I'm writing a book if I I have to be writing about something uh, it can't just be you know um, three dragons go on a quest i don't know if dragons really go on quests that shows you why i shouldn't write books about dragons <laughs> which is why i don't somebody asked me that why don't you write books about dragons and elves and i said because i don't know how to do it very well dragons have quests you yeah. know but they have to they have to do shit too like go to the grocery store or something yeah well that sounds like a riveting idea for a novel <laughs> <laughs> i uh Watch out about discussing that on air because somebody could steal that from you. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Nope. The dragon in the grocery store. I mean, it could be an interesting kid's book, I guess. Uh, I wanted to ask from the marketing or uh, advertising end of the spectrum, uh, how does finishing a series add into being able to market it more towards people who maybe have series fatigue and they're kind of waiting for the series to end before they get into the series. I know uh, a lot of people have said before that they're wary to get into a series until it's complete. Do you think this helps you from any kind of marketing perspective at all? It's an interesting question because I think it does. I think it does have an impact. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's an opportunity or, or a problem though, in that it's, it's true. I do. There's a, there's a, pretty good contingent of people who say that about television, about comics and about books, which is, you know, I don't want to get into something until I know the whole series is out or until there's been a few seasons of it. And of course the problem is that that kills an awful lot of, of, of great stories. So in the case of books, for example, if you have a four book series and someone sort of says, Oh, I, I don't read anything until the series is complete. Um, if that series isn't lucky enough to have stuck around, you won't you won't get to that ending. Because um, even if a fourth book comes out, you go to a bookstore and they won't have any copies of the first book. 
so that that's the the tricky side of that. It's a much more pernicious problem with uh, television and comics, I think, than than with books. Um, with a television series, when people if people don't watch that pilot and if they don't watch the first few episodes, if they just wait for the season to be complete so that they can binge watch, that kind of is a death sentence for a TV series. And in the case of comics, you see this coming up where it's a huge problem where um, people wait for the collected editions of everything. So instead of, because they don't want to buy floppies anymore, they'll, they, they go and, um, you know, they wait until a whole um, sequence, like a four, four or six comic sequence has been collected uh, in a, in a gra- as a graphic novel. Um, but that means that, that there aren't any of those sales often and so um, it, it particularly affects new authors and new comic book writers. It particularly affects um, diverse, more diverse uh, comics, for example. Sorry to delve into comics, but it's often really hard. Uh, you know, people want more diverse voices in comics. But then if, if, if everybody waits till it's a success before they start reading it, there's sort of no chance for it. So in, it, the flip side is almost true if you have a series that's been relatively successful. Um, and I mean, there's all, you know, you guys know there's all different levels of, of success from from Stephen King and George R. R. Martin down to, you know, the various levels. And in, in, and I sort of occupy a, an OK spot in there, but but nowhere near where, where those guys are, where if, if the series is done all right, well, then there's you might have an appetite for uh, a reissue of the series where all four books you know come out simultaneously, let's say, as a mass market paperback instead of a trade paperback. So um, so that might be kind of uh, kind of cool. But it's tricky. It's interesting because being in Canada, um, there was a lot of weird stuff that went on with the books in, in Canada in terms of the, the the way that they sort of came out and, and the publishing process here. Uh, so it was sort of the reverse of England. In England, it sort of took off very quickly. And that meant that things just got you know, to some degree easier as you went along. Whereas, um, you know, in Canada, if, if you're if you're not making those sales on book one and book two, um, there's only one large bookstore chain, which is Indigo, and they'll just turn around and say, uh, no, we're not buying any copies of book three. Um, or they'll they'll wait, you know, they'll wait to see that it's selling somewhere else, which, again, kills the first week launch. And I mean, this is all sort of publishing nonsense, if you will. It's just part of that business. But um, <clears throat> but it's it's a it's a tricky problem the the fact that people like to binge watch or binge experience uh their stories now uh presents a lot of challenges um it's good in the case of of certain things like netflix when they're making a show like house of cards because they they have an upfront commitment where they say look you know we're not going to play around with pilots we're just going to make this thing and we're going to make it really well we're not going to change we're not going to course correct halfway through because somebody in in some part of the world decided they were offended by something they just tell the story that they want to tell but that's rarely the case for um for authors now that the uh series is complete how does it feel to have those four books kind of like sitting on your bookshelf is there like a sense of accomplishment yeah uh well you know i tend to sound strange but i tend to like the things that i write um (laughs) It, it, no, it does because so many, you know, so many people in the arts, you know, tend to it, because it's such a process of you're constantly trying to improve what you do. So it's easy to 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 not love your own work, um, and to some degree, it's kind of it's almost expected for writers to dislike their own work and you know, or actors to never want to see their own performances. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually true. I'm not sure there are any actors who don't watch their own performances despite what they say, but. Um, 
but uh, but I but I like the books as as books. And then when they're on the shelf, um, it's probably the most profound feeling of satisfaction for me because it's because you're looking at that. And, and for me, I'm sort of saying, wow, that is everything I have to say about swashbuckling and idealism. Like there may be more things I have to say later on, but but that sensation of, you know, I've I've managed to communicate, you know, everything that every sort of thought that was connected with that with that notion, I've managed to take these characters that were really fascinating to me and take them through, you know, the entire sort of four book cycle, that sense of completion, completing a series has a tremendous amount of satisfaction to it. I I don't know what it's like for everyone else. I know I've I've heard authors say that they have a kind of a grief that goes along with it, uh, you know, that they're going to miss the characters or something like that. But for me, I just, uh, it, it was, you know, the greatest feeling in the world to sort of put the fourth book on the mantle next to the other three and go, I, you know, I actually finished something in my life. And last time you were on the show, too, you spoke to uh, the in- increased difficulty of completing each volume in the series, how each each book got a little more complicated to wrap up. So I imagine um, getting Tyrant's Throne, you mentioned before, uh, in January, you were kind of uh, hitting that deadline and trying to get that manuscript out. So I presume that um, it was a good feeling to finally get that novel finished up and, and out. It was. It's, you know, it's terrible because I used to mock uh, literary authors, um, you know, for, for the sort of the sort of the, the pretense that somehow every everything is of such utter consequence that they have to exist in a complete state of inner turmoil and, and all of that. And I have totally turned into an artiste. Like I, not, I'm not saying that my, my, my books are, are literary uh, novels by any, uh, I'm not saying that at all. Um, but, but yeah, I sweat uh, over every line now, which is something that just sort of changed over time. Uh, every, every plot point, every detail, I, you know, it's remarkable how you can become so wrapped up in that question of, um, is this the right thing? Is this the truest novel I could write? So it's a really strange process. And, and I didn't expect that at all. My, my theory when I came into this, um, into the world of publishing was, you know, that you write, if you write a series, it's easier you know, that, that, that because you've already got your characters in your world and more, more than anything else, you already know that it works. You know, if you have one book that I used to think Neil Gaiman was a sap because I was like, you know, you write these incredible books and then you don't write any sequels. Um, but, but once I started getting into it and I was like, how do you make, how do you make the second book in a series better than the first? You know, when, when people don't have the first flush of excitement of encountering the characters for the first time, how do you make the third book better than the second? How do you, you know, and, and when Saint's Blood came out, there's just all these reviews that were really very kind. But this common theme where someone would say, you know, these books get better each one. I have no idea how he's going to top book three. And I was going like, yeah, I don't have any idea either. And so I was just killing myself, uh, trying to just trying to get it right, trying to not let down the story and, and, and the, the, the themes that I'm talking about and not let down the, the readers who've been so incredibly supportive. Fortunately, I was, you know, so lucky that, um, my editor is Joe Fletcher and, uh, and if you've ever met Joe Fletcher, she's a force of nature when it comes to fantasy uh, writing. And so she was not not only super helpful in, in the process in that she just has a lot of insight uh, into into you know fantasy and into finishing a fantasy series and all those things. But she was also so generous because I was sending her, I kid you not, sometimes I was sending her a chapter at a time. 
and then going forward and then she she'd go and edit that and then send it back and then I'd I'd go forward and sometimes I'd go back and suddenly send her a cha- you know chapter from 20 chapters ago uh, and that's really difficult for an editor to deal with right like what an editor wants is for you to send them your very best draft of the book complete and let them do the work um so it was only through that process that we were able to really get Tyrant's Throne to where it needed to be and I I was so grateful for that because um you know, as I say, you, you, you want so badly to get it right. Just, you know, as an author, you, you want to, you know, honor all of the work that's, that you've done before and all of the people that have supported the work. And, um, yeah, I don't, I really, I, I don't think I could have done it without Joe. In the, uh, as resident, far as, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, as far as, uh, what you learned completing this series, uh, are there any things that you think you can carry over that you, that you learned and into writing the Spellslinger series, Spellslinger series, and how uh, how you can use uh, various ways you completed the the novels with this new series, or do you think it's a new set of challenges because it's a you know different genre, different feel? That's a great question. You know, what have I what have I learned from those first four books that I can carry forward with me into into Spellslinger? Um, and uh, the answer is nothing. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. Like there's, listen, there's something wrong with me uh, as a, as a writer and I, I haven't figured it out or how to solve it yet, but every single book ends up being a, a very different process to get there. And it's strange because at, at the outcome, you know, if you read all four of the great coats books, they all feel, um, consistent and contiguous and they're part of that world and they're the, the writing style and the tone and all of those things are, they they're consistent, but the process to get there was very different with each one. And I'm finding that with Spellslinger as well. It's it's this constant process of trying to discover how to write that, you know, the next book. I try every crazy, you know, approach you can imagine, every different approach to plotting or not plotting or, you know, uh, sometimes I try to invent new terms just to think about the <laughs> The the, uh, the the aspects of a novel differently. Some some of that's just I mean some of those are things that I've just learned that um, you know it's funny because the thing about writing is that there's billions of craft books out there right like there's just a you can walk into to a bookstore and find like all of these different books on you know here's how to write your great novel how to write your fantasy novel how to write your fantasy novel with grimdark elements you know the, and they're all generally sort of talking about the same things. Um, and some are, some are great and some are less so. Um, but the problem is that each writer has to figure out for themselves what language, like what concepts make sense to them. So I'll sometimes tell people like, I, I try not to write characters. I try to write relationships between characters. Um, because that's, that's for me where things move out of being just very workmanlike into something interesting. So I always use the example of, um, the, the TV show Sherlock. Right. If you think of Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, um, neither of those characters is half as interesting as the relationship between the two of them. Like if you, you know, when you when you if you if you just extract those two characters of Holmes and Watson, they're not that interesting. But when you see the two of them together and the relationship that they're you know that they have, then it becomes really fascinating. And so it's a lot of those things that you're just kind of continuously discovering. You know, like people talk always talk about you know. Um, 
uh, plot events and and act structures. And, and I I think in terms of act structures as well. But actually, it's more helpful to think in terms of you know questions like what's the question that's driving the story right now, and when what caused that question to change, and what's the new question. So all of that's just to evoke the fact that um, that I'm a mess, and uh, and it's a it's a small miracle that each book comes out on time. Well, that's like me and Rob. We're like we're like Sherlock and Watson. Mm-hmm. We're 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 both not very interesting people no. separately. But when we combine together, we're like fucking podcast gold. Uh, awesome Voltron guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, but I, we're only but we're only two lions. We're only two <laughs> robot lions. You could. Yeah, you may. It may be time to bring forth a, a third podcast, a Voltron lion element to uh, to combine mm-hmm. to the mix, you know, just to uh, just to spice it up. You got to keep the magic alive, kids. We could. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. It's a, like I say, you know, it's a, the, what I'm finding and I, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of other writers go through this, which it's just that you're in this constant state of trying to become a writer at the level of the books that you're writing. Uh, I always sort of say, um, you know, I'm not trying to be a great writer. I'm trying to write great books. Um, and what that means is, you know, I, I, I don't care how I get there. You know, if if it has to be a horrible, messy journey that's embarrassing eighty percent of the time, but then somehow at the end you get it a, a book that you really believe in, then then I'm okay with that. And so that's kind of what that's that's my day to day experience. I don't want to be just a good podcaster. I want to do good podcasts. There you go. See, I'm applying yeah. I'm applying the Dick Estelle method. Well, but think of it this way, right? I mean, we were talking before the show, and it was terrible <laughs> and embarrassing, <laughs> and all things that. Sane people should not ever say right. when there's the possibility of a microphone picking <laughs> it up. But with a little extra work and cleaning up, this episode is going to sound as if it was actually a genuine interview between mm-hmm. two professional podcasters and a writer. And uh, that's the magic, right? True. That's true. That's you just put, you know, my theory is you, if you just put slightly more work in and then you you end up with something better, um, even if it uh, even if it comes faster or easier to someone else. You were kind enough to send out um, not only a book four, you sent out Tyrant's Throne to me. Thank you very much. Um, you also sent ahead of that was a Tyrant's Throne exclusive sampler, which was this little like pamphlet sized uh, little book. I think it's like, what, 40, 50 pages. And it's got um, a very cool uh, letter from you in here, um, Secrets of the Great Coats. And it's got uh, some sample chapters from tyrant's throne so usually i might get an arc but i never get a book sampler before the book comes so that's really cool yeah that was uh i think it was quirkus us who came up with the idea of doing that they wanted to sort of create something for for bookstores and and fans and and reviewers that would just kind of help them get back into the world and and sort of make the launch of the final book uh special and uh it was something i had written a couple of years ago uh, most of that material. And it was, it was a series of, um, letters that King Palis had written the, the night before he died about his sort of knowledge of the state of the world. Um, cause there's all this, there's all these crazy orders in the, uh, in the great coats books, you know, there's the, the great coats are the order of magistrates and you have the Bardati or this order of traveling, uh, storytellers and, and the Dashini were assassins and, um, and the Rangieri are introduced in the fourth book were the sort of the, the long, the long distance spies of, of the country. 
Uh, and so we wanted to do something where you could, you know, because Falcio is never super knowledgeable about those things. And as the narrator of the books, he's sort of experiencing it with the reader a lot of the time. Like he didn't, you know, he, he hasn't dealt with all these other orders before. So we wanted to do something where um, there was some hints about where, where it all came from and what it all meant. And so that's what, uh, that's what Secrets of the Great Coats was for. So I'm glad you liked it. And then you also mentioned us in the acknowledgments section of Tyrant's Throne. So... That was a clerical error. Sorry. <laughs> I, I meant to say the Grim Ridings podcast. Oh shit! Those guys are awesome. They are great. Yeah, they're the best. But we don't. Yeah. We don't like them. No. <laughs> yeah, oh. they're kind of yeah. shit. No, it was it was absolutely my pleasure to get to uh, to to mention you guys in there. It's you know this is the joy of my life getting up at quarter to seven <laughs> in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, and then you thank uh, us for it. And then I thank you for it. <laughs> no, you guys do a great podcast. Thank you. I loved listening to your. I listened to your podcast with Nick Eames, my buddy Nick Eames. Oh and yeah, it was really fun. I've literally never heard my name drop that many times. <laughs> like my name was spoken more in that interview than in any interview that was actually with me. Right. <laughs> yeah, we were actually going to ask you about that uh, specifically because uh, we did have uh, Nick Eames on the show, and he is the author of Kings of the Wild which is a fabulous book uh, published by uh, Orbit, uh, I believe. And um, you actually had a, a little hand in uh, assisting Nicholas along the way in his uh, publishing goals there. Well, yeah, sort of. Um, ish. It, it's Ish. No, I mean, look, the, the thing is, because Nick's very gracious about about that, um, and, it, and it comes up a lot. Uh, I've noticed out there um, and bless you guys. Cause I think he totally embarrassed him horribly uh, by making it sound like I was his fairy godmother. Um, <laughs> but uh, no. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so I, I had met Nick back when he was oddly, when he was working at a restaurant and then uh, you know, we, we ran into each other again and then uh, at a, at the Vancouver international writers festival. And um I think we talked about getting coffee. I'm not even sure if it was him who asked. I think I might have offered because he mentioned he was writing. He'd been writing a book and he seemed like a nice guy and you know, he had some questions. So um, and then uh, he'd been sort of trying to, you know, get an agent um, and uh, and was sort of in talks with a, with another agent. It wasn't quite going in, a, in the right direction, it sounded like. So I, I just offered that I would take a look at his as book and I'd read a few pages. And if I thought there was something that my agent might be interested in, I would send it to her. Um, and I did. And, uh, and, and Heather signed him and, uh, you know, to the great success of both. So it was, it was, I got credit on both sides, which is really nice. Um, but, but the real truth of it is, and I mean, this is the thing everybody probably needs to remember about this story is, um, anybody who reads the first few pages of Nick's writing, we'll see that that guy really knows how to write. He's a really good writer. Um, mm. He's an incredibly thoughtful writer as well. It's funny because, you know, Nick writes, he writes about stuff that sounds like it's intended to be, you know, fun fluff, right? It's sort of very Dungeons and Dragons-y and it's got the rock and roll element and it's, you know, people can look at it as good old heroic fiction. But the reason why it works is because while that's what's going on in the story and the characters, they're things that, that he loves and a lot of people love. Behind that, he's a tremendously intelligent and thoughtful writer who puts all the same work into writing that book as someone, you know, would put into writing any literary novel. Um, and that's and that's what I like about him. And that's that's what I try to do in, in my own work is is 
regardless of whether you're writing, you know, something that, that's about whatever college professors going through midlife crisis or whether you're writing about swashbuckling sword fighters, you try to ask yourself all the time, am I doing this justice? Am I writing the best, deepest, most true story possible? And and that's that's what that's why I think people are responding to, to Kings of the Wild, because that's what Nick does. So, you know. Uh, to what degree, you know, did I, did I, uh, I introduced him to Heather um, and she's the, you know, look, Heather Adams is the greatest agent on the face of the planet. Uh, you know, to me, there's just, there's absolutely no one uh, I like and admire as much um, in, in, as literary agents than her and, and her husband, Mike Bryan. Um, they've just been terrific because they're, you know, these super genuinely nice people who really care about good writing and, and taking care of authors, but they're also able to actually go out and, and make a really good deal. I mean, that's my, I make my living as a writer because Heather is able to negotiate, um, you know, better deals for me than, than, uh, than, than most other agents would be able to get me. I, I'm not saying anything bad about other agents. There's lots of great agents out there, but you know, you have this image of agents as being these, either they're like these kind of chain smoking sharks or, or they're these sort of hapless people. And, and probably that's not fair to anybody. But in the case of um, Heather, she just really knows how to get it, you know, how to how to match uh, a writer with an editor. And so that's what she did with Nick. Um, so, yeah. So so Nick, uh, the thing about his book is um, it's a really good book. And it would have if if we had never met, um, I would normally if somebody's look, if you've written a really good book, one of two things is going to happen. Either um, you're going to you're going to self-publish it one day because you know it's a good book if you can't get a publisher or you're going to get a publisher. But I think in Nick's case, he really loves the world of fantasy and the world of fantasy authors and, and sort of the traditional publishing world of it. So it was inevitable. So if he'd never met me, he'd still be reading Kings of the Wild. Yeah, we were actually going to talk about uh, the the importance of authors helping authors because we actually have a lot of authors who uh, tune in and listen to the show and I think it's important that uh, authors do help author other authors um, out so um, actually we're just going to bring on Nick Eames onto the show Nick how you doing sir hello how's it going hey welcome aboard uh, we didn't even tell Sebastian that you were going to join us today uh, but <laughs> hey Nick your your book sucks and you have no talent you know that right <laughs> Well, it's I too late. It's too late. a second ago, so that could have been the conversation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to tell these guys that, uh, you know, that it's your utter inability to string two words together, never mind two sentences. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I, I actually tried running words randomly through uh, just a random number generator, and I still couldn't come with come up with sentences that messed if up. you just send that to me, uh, I'll put it out as book two. That'd book two. Yeah. <laughs> How's book two going? Uh, pretty good. I'm like 90% done. I've been 90% done for quite some time, but yeah, closing in on the end. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. yeah feeling good and, about it. And that's the daughter, right? That's the daughter. Yeah. Bloody Rose. Bloody Rose. Yeah. Groovy. I've been telling everyone uh, for the, for the first while it was really cool. Cause you know, you and I met and, and I was a published author and you were an aspiring author. And I, I was so you know proud of you cause you, you know, your book's so good and it got out there and yeah, people were liking it. And now I hate you because I'm starting <laughs> to like your books more than mine. And I'm pretty sure that uh, that uh, I will be long forgotten next year and you'll like be the new George R. Oh, I doubt that. I doubt that. Well, uh, Kings of the Wild definitely has uh, gained some popularity. Uh, lots, lots of people are digging it, as well as the Great Code series, of course, Sebastian. But I uh, know people are loving uh, Nick's books. And uh, Nick, I wanted to actually uh, bring you on and have you uh, again maybe uh, 
recount the story maybe of how uh, Sebastian kind of helped you get things uh, kicked off with uh, Kings of the Wild? Uh, first of all, Sebastian, congratulations as well on both your two recent book launches. Oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I hear phenomenal things about them both, and I'm looking forward to reading them. Well, you're not getting a copy till I get my copy. <laughs> no, wow, fair that's enough. Sure. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, it was a dark and stormy night. Um, no, I work at a restaurant called Fable, uh, the name of which will feature in my second book. Um, and one day I was at the front uh, looking at the reservation list and saw Sebastian's name on it. Uh, and I was a huge fan of his having recently read Trader's Blade. And uh, requested that he get put in my section. So he came in. It was his wife's birthday. And I spoiled the party by announcing I was a fan and uh, mentioning that I was writing a book of my own. And Sebastian was just hugely gracious about it. I ran into him a few uh, months later at the Vancouver Writers' Festival. And he immediately remembered who I was and asked how I was doing and how the book was coming along. And then when I finished the book, I emailed him and basically just asked to, to meet up for coffee and with no intention of, say, asking him to read my book or putting him or getting him to put me in touch with his agent. But, uh, yeah, we just kind of shot the shit and talked about the publishing industry, and he gave me a copy of his uh, of his book, a hardcover, which you couldn't get in Canada at the time, uh, and it said, consider this a down payment for a copy of your first novel. So needless to say, I owe him a copy of my first novel, <laughs> which I've been late to deliver. Ever since then, he's been a huge source of advice and, uh, and wisdom ever since. He emails me once in a while and just checks in on how I'm doing, but it's been great. Yeah, mostly because I'm I've been trying to sort of subtly sabotage Nick's career uh, <laughs> as it's been taken off because uh, but uh, he doesn't really take the bait. So a lot of the the specific pieces of advice I give him, like you know, embed random phrases inside the text, like you know, check yeah. if you if you have read to this part, make a check mark or <laughs> things like that, or going on social media and yelling at fans, but. <laughs> Um, that, that's not working so far. There's actually corollary to the story, Nick, which I, I don't think I've told you, which we can't get into too much detail. Cause, uh, but, but the agent that you had been speaking to before, uh, Heather, uh, I, I realized I'd ended up becoming friends with sometime in between. Oh, wow. And, and yeah, so I, I had met uh, separately and completely never compared the two until yeah. finally we were at a convention together. And I said, Oh yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm the guy that sent Nick to a different agent. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which he took, he took with good grace. Okay, perfect. Well, I do owe him, uh, I do, do owe him some thanks because uh, although he didn't take me on, he made some suggestions to the book that made it uh, a lot better and are very probably the reason why it did get taken on. So, oh well, that's please good. Please pass well, my gratitude on to him next time you speak. I will. He is a super nice guy, but he'll probably punch me in the face if I tell him <laughs> any of it. So. <laughs> What's the secret of your audiobook success, Nick? I notice like your the audiobook version is just like the top thing on or one of the top books this year on uh, audible yeah i have no clue i think it i think they must have i am assuming accidentally advertised it too much um Oops. because yeah it just for some reason skyrocketed and i know the uk sales i think currently the audiobook has sold more than the trade paperback which is really wow. rare yeah i have no idea but boy am i ever grateful for it because uh, i think it probably goes to pay off my advance a bit quicker than <laughs> any other means so but it's been great. I listened to the audiobook was my very first audiobook that I ever listened to, and it was it was a pretty cool experience. I just had that with uh, Spellsinger because the the Great Coats books weren't weren't released in audio, and um, Spellsinger was. And it is kind of really weird to hear your own book read out to you, isn't it? Yeah. Were there any voices that like absolutely jarred with you, or? <laughs> well, the Joe Jameson was did did the audio for um for Spellsinger, and I mean he's really terrific. Some sometimes the voice isn't. 
the voice that you had in your head. But I, I, I knew that was going to be the case. And I just, you have to let that go right away, yeah. right? You have to allow the, the performer to interpret the story. Uh, you know, that, that's not to say, you know, there's, there's ways you can ruin a character, but, but he would never do that. And, and what was, what's amazing about that audiobook about Spellslinger in particular is the fact that every single voice is so distinct. Um, with a big cast like that, the fact that he can just pull all those different voices out and keep them consistent is really remarkable. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll grab that actually because I've got an Audible credit just waiting to go, and I think I'll listen to it. Audible.com. You, you want to hear you want to hear a really uh, not super funny story um, <laughs> at, at the at the big launch for Spellslinger, which as I said was you know in this amazing place in Trafalgar Square and. All this stuff has gone into it, and they, they you know, they wanted me to read uh, a chapter of the book, uh, or read a, a, a segment of the book. And I put, a, I put a lot of work into readings. Like I, I spent, like I edited the text down to be short enough to, to, to get to the right point inside of the reading, and I rehearsed it a thousand times, and I just really try to make sure that I can deliver a performance um, that's decent. And of course, I've been listening to the audiobook when I'm in London, I, I tend to just walk everywhere, even if it's like an hour away. I, I just, it's London's a great city for walking and, and I'll listen to stuff on my headphones. And, and I just happen to be listening to the, the, the audiobook of Spellslinger. Um, and anyway, so I'm, I'm at this, uh, the event and I start reading and I hear somebody's phone. Uh, and you know, there's like a lot of media and people at this event and they're all standing around watching me and I'm, and I'm reading and I'm like, Oh, you know, I want to kill the person whose phone is, is going off. Um, cause it's not ringing. It's something else playing on it. At first I thought maybe it's like the speakers overhead or something in the, in the, in the room. And, uh, so I just keep plowing through and then about two minutes in, I realize, Holy crap, it's my phone. It's in my pocket. And <laughs> I had been listening to Spellsinger and somehow I've sweated through oh my, my pocket, which has triggered the, the, the play button, like the, you know, cause the, the screen, like I must've hit the button and then it's, and it's thinks I've tapped the play button wow. and it's actually playing the audiobook of Spellsinger in my pocket while I'm trying to read the book of Spellslinger out loud. And, um, and yeah, and it was just, it was just the, the hardest reading I've ever done in my life. Inception, Spellslinger Inception. <laughs> yeah, Spellslinger Inception. That's the danger of audiobooks, folks. They, you know, they, they you think they're just entertainment, but they'll kill you for <laughs> The danger is real. They're listening to you just like you're listening to them. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you're on the on the show, Nick, because I was telling these guys that uh, I listened. I had listened to the the episode you did with them, and I had never heard my name drop that many times, including any interview <laughs> in which I've been in. Yeah. So. Well, boy, I tell that story, and I was. Uh, had the chance to go to London recently and I was on some panels at Comic-Con and I told my fellow kind of debut authors that were on there with me, I'm like, you guys are going to get so sick of this Sebastian de Castell story. <laughs> if I have a career, like a long career and you have a long career, then you're going to be hearing it for the rest of our lives. Well, that's yeah. nice of you. But, but as I told these guys, um, you know, anybody who reads the first couple of pages of your work knows, you know, instantly that you're a great writer and, uh, that book was going to that book was going to get published whether uh, whether we ever met or not it was just a matter of time so if it came out 5 minutes faster because we met then that's great but um True. but at it's the all in the time, writing at the same time uh, the fact that heather our our shared agent uh, picked it up and then the, f- the person she gave it to like orbit uh, has been very particularly great about it so i'm not sure if it would be the same book uh, ultimately 
that made it without those exact course of events. So still pretty fortunate. Well, I don't argue with you. I'll give you an address. You can send the royalty check <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that'll be great. But, uh, but you know, the, the challenge now of course is, uh, is that now you got to do that for somebody else. And, uh, if you haven't already, I shall certainly try. There's this, there's this hot series, uh, of unpublished works, uh, called splatter elf. Mm. That's it's waiting for that connection to be made. Just waiting. Perfect. Uh, splatter. Yeah, elf. That's me. That's me. It's not just a, it's not just a book. It's a genre. <laughs> you guys had sort of asked the question about authors helping authors and all that's that true. stuff. Mm -hmm. Authors helping writers. And I did want to say something about that. Cause I, I think it's kind of important because, um, like I've tried, I try generally speaking, because yeah, I think you asked the question, like, do, do authors have a responsibility to help other writers and stuff? And or and I think they do, but it's up to every author to interpret that for themselves, what that means. Um, it doesn't mean for everybody that um, you know that they're going to want to you know read somebody's un, you know pages of someone's unpublished manuscript or things like that. But but what I did want to say is because I, I do that fairly often. Like I'll meet somebody who's a writer and you know, I'll, I'll, if they ask, I'll, I'll read some of their work and, um, you know, I read it the same way I read. I always warn people I read the same way as I read any other book, which is if it doesn't grab me on the first page, if it's not more interesting to me than the book that I'm currently reading, then I, then I'm out. Um, which is, and that's just sort of the nature of it because I, you know, I don't have any particular magical expertise in interpreting text beyond going, you know, this is really interesting and appeals to me or this doesn't. Um, but I, I do try to do that wherever I can. But one of the things I, I've noticed is that, you know, we talk a lot in the industry about um, that. It's it's really it's kind of a straight white guy industry still, despite some pretty amazing, diverse authors. It's, uh, you know, it's still sort of dominated by the same kind of demographic that, that, that as was dominating it decades ago. And one of the things I've noticed is that male writers, unpublished writers are, are much more kind of open to asking for that help than than people who are coming from more marginalized communities. And um, so I'm always telling people like, watch out for politeness is really good, but don't let politeness kind of get in the way of your own career. Like if, uh, uh, I mean, like I say, you know, a great book is, is eventually going to find its, its, its publisher or, or be self-published. Nick would have been published either way, but you know, I'm sure there was an impulse on his part to go, you know, Oh, well, I don't want to bother this guy, you know, et cetera. But you have to kind of, uh, it, it's just, I guess what I'm saying is people have to give themselves permission to ask and be refused for, uh, to ask for that help. And, 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 and if, if the, if somebody doesn't want to help you, that's fine. But as a writer, you know, your, your first duty is, is to your, your work and, and your writing and your career. So, you know, don't hesitate to piss off authors. Yeah. Nick, do you have any, um, thoughts on, on, I mean, you're just kind of starting out with book one being released, but, uh, any thoughts from you on helping other writers at this stage in the game? I mean, a lot of time, all you can give them is advice, uh, or your own personal experiences and, uh, and they can kind of do with it what they will. And with, in Sebastian's case, like I, I had a lot of friends that, uh, you know, I just told me they're like, you know, seize any opportunity you can get exactly what he said. You got to give yourself a chance and you've, uh, sometimes if you, if you miss that opportunity, there's so many chances I could have missed that particular opportunity. Um, so yeah, seize every single one you get and pursue every avenue you can, because you never know which one's going to lead you to uh, someplace awesome. And it's really hard, right? I, th you know, writers generally, I mean, it's such a sensitive thing. It's such a vulnerable thing to, to say to somebody, you know, Oh, could you take a look at this or give me some advice on finding an agent or, or any of those things? And, um, 
I guess I'm just saying like, you know, there's a there's always a 90% chance that anyone you ask is going to say, look, I'm too busy right now. I can't help. Like I'm in the middle of writing, you know, two books right now and and all that stuff. But sometimes you, you sort of have to do it, even if it means you might irritate somebody. I'm sure there's tons of authors out there who made like 90 enemies before they ended up getting published and their work was much beloved. And there are virtually, you know, there are very few authors out there who, um, you know, whose whose work got published because they never bothered anyone. You're always going to be bothering somebody. Sometimes you just have to do that. So I just say that because I just I worry sometimes that um, that there's a lot of, you know, especially guys like, you know, we're sort of trained to be um, not aggressive necessarily, but we're trained to think that whatever we do is important and worth somebody else's time. But I always find with, uh, or I don't know, a, a, a number of, of you know smart, talented female writers I've met have been so hesitant to ask for help, uh, either you know of, of anyone, or just to 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 you know ask for connection to an agent or something like that. And um, so you just you got to look out for your 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 own career and try and be polite. But you know who cares if if it had turned out that that Nick's book sucked, which I'm not saying it doesn't, but. <laughs> Uh, I still would never think badly of him for, you know, cause he's a super nice guy and, and you want to, you want to help, uh, wherever you can, despite the fact that I didn't do very much for his career in particular, but <laughs> this is the authorial Thunderdome. And speaking of, uh, uh, helping myself, um, this, this is going to be, uh, questions about if this place is a Canadian city. Or a place from my Splatter Elf universe that I made up. So you're going to guess if this is a real Canadian city or a place from my fucked up fantasy stories that I write. Mm-hmm. Splatterelf.com. Yes. Splatterelf. Okay. There's no Splatterelf.com. Oh. There will anyway. be five minutes when I register it. <laughs> God. <laughs> and you can pay dearly for it. Oh, shit. So you guys are going to vote uh, if this is a real Canadian city or some place I pulled up. Uh, pulled up out of my asshole. All right, number one, Payne Court. Well, I I failed geography in uh, well at every level that one can fail geography, but I'm going to say that uh, that is a splatter elf city. I am also okay. going to say that I wouldn't put it past the people that live in rural Canada to name a place that, but <laughs> this is a Canadian city. Yeah. Yes. Son of a- you both really? Yeah. Well, listen, I, I just I- want to. Send a, a shout out to everyone in Payne Court <laughs> yeah. and suggest that you uh, change the name of the goddamn city because <laughs> that just can't be good for tourism. I think it's like the bread, like the French bread pronunciation, maybe. Oh, Payne. Payne, maybe. So, yeah, I mispronounced cool. that in my southern way. Payne. Well, Torture Road. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would okay, be Tortier so you, Road. Yeah, from the French Tortier, yeah. <laughs> You both you both lost that one. Yeah. Okay, next uh, next losers. one. Placentia. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna stick with that. That's got to be Splatter Elf. I'm gonna go with that too. No, that is a real Canadian city. Placentia. <laughs> Just killing me. Sick fucks. People people of Placentia. Again, Placentia. Just a name change. Although Pink Cool, well, shortbread. That that one that all yeah. No matter what, just change the name, folks. <laughs> okay, a few more. Next one is called uh, "Head Smashed In Buffalo Jump." <laughs> that is absolutely Splatter Elf. Yeah, I'm gonna go Splatter Elf. Okay, that is also a real Canadian city. <laughs> Head not. Smashed In Buffalo. It's Google it. God. Google it. I'm googling this. <laughs> 
Head smashed in Buffalo jump. Oh my God. <laughs> go camping there. Should have known better. Alberta representing. Yeah, it's, it's Alberta. The, uh, what the fuck is wrong with Canada? Where the foothills of the Rocky Mountains meet the Great Plains, you'll discover one of the world's oldest, largest, and best preserved buffalo jumps. The jump bears okay. witness to a method of hunting practiced by native peoples in <laughs> North American Plains for nearly 6,000 years. I got to go to this place. <laughs> the sad thing is, I Plan your next trip. Have you been there, Nick? I think, I think so. I've done a couple cross-Canada road trips, so I got a feeling I've seen it. Wow. It looks really cool, too. All right, people have head smashed in Buffalo. <laughs> No need for a name change. No need. Keep on keeping on. <laughs> I got to get okay, that a t-shirt. Two more. Stay grimdark. Two more, two more here. Okay, so next one is uh, Crotch Lake. <laughs> I'm going to say that that's a real Canadian city. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yes, that yes, is a real it Canadian is real. city. <laughs> Crotch Lake. We've learned our lesson. Also, no need times. for a name change. Crotch Lake, just keep going. Yeah. It's in it's in the North Frontenac Parklands too, which is quite beautiful. So, <laughs> if you're listening and you're looking for a good place to go, and you feel like head smashed in Buffalo Jump is too far, <laughs> but you're near the North Frontenac Parklands, yeah. we I think uh, on behalf of the whole Grim Tidings podcast, uh, we'd recommend Crotch Lake. <laughs> and it feeds into Rectum Bay, which is really beautiful. Too. That's a okay. lovely bay. Lovely. Sometimes the Rectum. water coming out the other end is not that pretty, but Rectum Bay is going in the next splatter. <laughs> yeah. Rectum Bay. Okay, and the last one is Bacon Cove. Bacon Cove. I could see that being real. Just for the chance of one of us winning and losing, I'm going to go opposite then. I'll say no. I'm, I'm going to say it's real, and, and I'm going to march to victory on that bet. <laughs> yeah, it's yep. real. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they're all real Canadian cities that I yeah. researched. I didn't, I didn't use anything. There was no winner. True. Yeah, no. so Sebastian is our winner of the great geography Geography B of Canadian <laughs> authors. Yeah. Podcast Yay. gold. Podcast gold. <laughs> the playtest Thunderdome ever. Nice. I know. I thought it was going to be Thunderdome like we insult each other's books. Well, you have a second chance here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last part of the Thunderdome is, uh, Sebastian, you're going to give a pitch about why you should or should not read Nicholas Eames' books. And then, Nicholas, you're going to give your pitch about why people should or should not read Sebastian D. Castell's books. And then whichever one we like better will be the ultimate winner. Yep. We are going to judge you. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, judge you so hard. Judge you so hard. I'll go. <laughs> okay. Uh, you should read Kings of the Wild because it's everything that you loved about classic fantasy and those characters and those settings and those adventures but it's told in a modern, really smart voice with a tremendous amount of heart. And so it captures all of the, the things that you love, but in a way that you can actually enjoy them now. It's not just nostalgia because it's got such a great contemporary style to it. So that's why you should read Kings of the Wild. Great. Right. Very positive spin. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, personally, I enjoyed The Great Coats more when it was called The Three Musketeers. Oh. Um, just kidding. Nice. That was my burn. <laughs> that was the burn I had in the chamber. Um, no, you should read The Great Coats um, because it is hilarious and poignant and thought-provoking. Uh, and it is a book about camaraderie and a book about ideals uh, and a book about those ideals um, clashing against others and not coming away unscathed. And characters that over the course of four books 
uh, and granted, I have yet to read the fourth one yet, but really do uh, change and are shaped by the events uh, that occur to them throughout the books, which sometimes doesn't, I think, happen in a lot of fantasies. The characters are the characters for the entire time, uh, whereas I think Sebastian's characters are definitely the product of, uh, of their world. And the fight scenes are second to none. Because every one of them, uh, as soon as it begins, a lot of the times you kind of maybe glaze over a fight scene or look forward to getting back to the story. But uh, in his books, you kind of brew a pot of tea, grab a whiskey, and sit down and enjoy the next few pages. So, yeah, awesome. Very nice. Very nice. What do you say, Phil? Who's, who's going to take the win, the W, on this one? Uh, just to fuck with people. It's a tie. Oh. Everyone wins. Yay. Positivity. <laughs> Wow, I like I like the dripping sincerity from your voice, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, both, coming both out were very good. Uh, hopefully soon. I've been planning to get out there ever since um, springtime, basically, ever since that book came out. So, I ideally maybe this fall at the very latest, hopefully. Uh, okay. And okay. I'd like to do something at that White Dwarf Books place. Oh, yeah. Hopefully, see you when I'm there. Yeah. I was I was just there and uh, mentioned your book and I encouraged them to uh, take it off the shelf, <laughs> um, but they refused. They said that uh, people really liked the book. They said they said they weren't sure at first that you know because sometimes if it's a local author, all their friends come in and buy it and say how great it is. But they have lots of people now who uh, who buy the book and then they end up calling them up, telling them how great it was. So oh, wonderful! Again, screw you, Nicholas Eames. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the name of the episode. Screw you, Nicholas Eames, with Sebastian <laughs> Dickestel. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, my, my whole Dickestel hates everyone. Sorry, you know what's Nicholson. you know what's terrible about that? My my whole writing career is going to be defined by by artificial conflicts with other writers. There was I don't know if I told you guys this story about the the province article that came out about me and George R. R. Martin. My friend uh, Peter Darbyshire, who at the time was writing for the province, we did this 90-minute long interview about everything under the sun to do with Saint's blood. And then um, all of a sudden, the the article that comes out is titled, that time George R. R. Martin told Vancouver author Sebastian Castell that he was a loser. Um, and it, it triggered quite a, a certain amount of unrest. Uh, he, he, he maintains it, it had like insanely high click rates that uh, just everybody was reading it, um, which was great, except that people who are fans of George R. R. Martin wanted to kill me. Oh. And, of course, he, he had been nothing but gracious to me. He was perfectly fine. He was just telling it like it is. Um, not, not that I was a loser, but that, uh, that, uh, that I was not going to be winning the, uh, the Campbell Award for uh, Best New Writer. Oh. Well, we don't think you're a loser. You well, are, Nick. That, yeah. We like you both. We like all our Canadian uh, brothers. Mm-hmm. I guess they're brothers. Brethren. Yo, we're all related. Yeah, I, got, I got to meet uh, our mutual friend Guy Gabriel K recently too. Was he nicer to you than he was to me? Well, yeah, he was a saint actually. <laughs> Granted, really? I, our first meeting, I I bought him a bottle of scotch, so oh, I didn't want to I, mess that up. He was he was predisposed to liking me. I uh, I met him and and said uh, he was one of the three authors that inspired me to to write fantasy, and he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> And then somebody later on told me that he probably that he probably hadn't heard me, but at the time it was it was kind of funny just because I had my hand stuck up. <laughs> and it was just a weird it was one of those weird things that just sort of randomly happens. Like nobody it's not it was totally unintentional. It just but it was so perfectly rendered that, you know, that's what happened. So yeah, well, I'm glad that, head when I met him. I'm like, please, please let this go better. Oh. Well, see, there you go. Yeah. See, you can have you can have the the career that I would have had if I hadn't made all the screw up 
that I, I make <laughs> away. Like that's that, that, you know, like I can warn you like, hey, by the way, when you meet George R. R. Martin, yeah. try not to ever tell a reporter that he told you you were a loser. <laughs> uh, just really sage advice that you would never know unless you've had. I've been watching your gaps with a close eye. for sure. Yeah. yeah. When does uh, when's book two coming out? Uh, it is very, very um, loosely slated for next April, but that's only because they were all originally slated for April. So we'll see. I turned the first draft in in September, and we'll kind of go from there to see how much work it needs or not. But definitely next year. Oh, I usually turn the first draft in about a week before publication date. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. I am, yeah. I've got a few extensions thus far, so. Uh-huh. It is scary, isn't it? Are you are you freaking out over the second book thing? I, I freaked out over Night Shadow. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> uh, I did a bit more like, a few months ago. I had a bit more anxiety about it, but there's definitely nights where you just you just think the worst is going to happen. And Luckily, those are few and far between. Most of the time, I'm pretty excited about it. Well, I've already started writing the uh, creating my sock puppets for Goodreads to write the negative reviews of it. So oh, perfect. If you, so I have a few in mind, but if you can think of some other really good ones. Are you, sent to you. Next, are you at work on the next uh, series set in Tyria? Uh, just yet. Um, so we're in, we're in talks for that right now. and um, uh, But as I was telling these guys, it's mostly a process of trying to figure out, um, you know, what's what do I want to say with that and, and who yeah. are the right characters and, and things like that. Like I, I everything's set up for that. Um, there it's it's all set up inside of book four who those other characters would be because that was one of my rules is i can't write about i can't write another falcio book right away yeah. um you know falcio involves so much um kind of maudlin self-reflection and he's always beating himself up so i, I need to give him a break but in the so the so there's that in the meantime uh but this year i've got two spellslinger books i i, I wrapped up uh, shadow black which is the sequel to spellslinger which comes out in october uh, and then uh, I'm working on Charmcaster right now, which is the third book, and then Soulbinder, which is the fourth. And then there's two more after that. But fortunately, I I already wrote book five. Wow. Uh, yeah. So then we'll be they let you name six. your own books, eh? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Oh, um, well, the the actually, you know, sometimes there's some debate about it, but usually I spend quite a bit of time trying to work out the right name for for a book, and um, and, and of course that. You know, there's a lot of people that have to be in, involved in that. But, yeah, I get to I usually get to name them with um, the interesting thing with Charmcaster is that originally, it, you know, well, you know what this is like in any authors listening. Like when you pitch a series, you you know, they want X number of books. And so you, so I had to come up with working titles for all the books. And the third one was going to be called Hex Tracker. And my um, publisher in the UK, she very uh, kindly and, and thoughtfully said, um, you know, we're wondering if that's really as good a name as the other names. Uh, and so, so, which was her way of saying like, this name sucks and we don't want to pay to print it on the cover of the book. (laughs) Um, and so I, I said to her at the time I was working on shadow black and stuff like that. And I said, well, we had another meeting scheduled for three days later. So I said, well, while I work on like the book stuff, how about, you know, you can come up with the next title. And, um, she came up with a bunch of ideas, uh, and then we, we came to Charmcaster, um, because we were talking about Charm Spinner and things, like, and then we ended up with Charmcaster, and and then I was like, wow, actually, I really like that title, and then it made me completely rethink what the third book was about. So the That's title helped to inform the book, which is kind of an odd thing. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do from now on: just come up with a really good book title and then write a book around that. 
Well, speaking of good book titles, Tyrant's Throne is available now, book four of the Great Coat series, available on Amazon. The link is on the show notes if folks want to pick that up. DickCastell.com is the website to track down Sebastian. He's on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you'll probably be back again in six months because that's kind of our trend here, Sebastian, is just to bring you along and check in with you every so often because you're a delight to talk to. Just like Nicholas Eames, who's online at NicholasEames.com. His book, Kings of the Wild, is available now as well. And you can check this show archive to listen to our first interview with Nicholas Eames. Pleasure to have you both joining us on the show for the impromptu round of Author Thunderdome. Another fantastic episode, guys. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Let me talk to the storytellers for a second. You know who you are. Crafting a story that captures the imaginations and the hearts of your audience is no small task. Stacks of notes, timelines, maps, character profiles. The architecture of storytelling can be a daunting prospect. Introducing Archivos, the story development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated.